and we became known as the guys to do oil field services work, mainly because we just took a much more uh, broad view of how to do valuation work. And this really stems from the fact that I studied economics. I'm a finance guy. I love what are the economic drivers as to why someone's going to buy one thing versus another. So it, it became very evident that we were bringing a totally different approach to this than our competition was in terms of appraising oil field services equipment. Oil and gas today is more than exploration and production. It's more than the feet drilled or the hours of continuous pumping hours. The oil field is a group of people, companies, technologies, and institutions working towards providing the world with safe, affordable energy that is sustainable for the billions of people that depend on the success of the industry. The Oil Field 360 podcast is a 360-degree deep dive into the leaders of the industry who will provide listeners with a first-hand account of what it takes to build, maintain, and lead the energy business into the future. Oil Field 360 podcast is brought to you by the following sponsors. Simmons Energy, a division of Piper Sandler. Simmons Energy, a division of Piper Sandler, is one of the largest and most experienced energy investment banking firms in the industry, offering M&A advisory, capital markets execution, and investment research. For more information, please visit www.simmonspsc.com. World Oil For more than 103 years, World Oil has provided global decision makers with coverage of the latest market intelligence and technological advances relating to the upstream oil and gas industry. To subscribe and learn more about these essential resources, please visit www.worldoil.com. Prang & Associates, the global energy search leader. Prang & Associates is the world's leading executive search firm totally dedicated to the energy industry. Over our 39 years, we've assisted more than 750 management teams and boards in 75 countries and conducted nearly 3,600 engagements. For more information, please visit www.prang.com. EIV Capital EIV Capital is a growth equity-focused private equity firm which has been providing capital to the North American energy industry since 2009. The team has extensive experience across the entire energy value chain. We invite you to visit www.eivcapital.com and learn how we partner with entrepreneurs to build businesses. Galtway Industries Known as the most connected and value-driven manufacturing partner in the oil field, Galtway Industries specializes in developing and implementing supply chain solutions for top-tier OEMs with a specialty in steel forgings, castings, machining, and fabrication designed to exceed expectations. Visit www.galtwayindustries.com to learn more. Tomahawk Safety Tomahawk Safety is a leading manufacturer of oil field safety gloves with products that are ergonomically designed for superior fit, offer best-in-class protection, and stand up to the industry's toughest jobs. For more information, please visit www.tomahawksafety.com. Range Valuation Services Range is the only oil and gas-focused valuation and appraisal firm in the financial services industry. Range specializes in appraising and valuing oil field equipment, machinery, inventory, and property and customarily works directly with clients, lenders, investment bankers, insurers, and private equity and debt sponsors. For more information, please visit www.rangevaluationservices.com. Lockton Global Energy and Marine. Uncommonly different. 
Lockton is the world's largest privately owned insurance broker and risk finance advisor. Lockton's energy expertise is largely centered in Houston and represents the largest concentration of energy specialists, clients, and experiential knowledge in the upstream, midstream, downstream segments of the oil and gas industry. Besides risk finance and risk management consulting, Lockton provides commercial insurance and employee benefits brokerage, as well as human resources and retirement consulting. For more information, please visit www.lockton.com. Welcome to the Oilfield 360 podcast. We are coming to you in the middle of quarantine. Uh, this is a special edition. We are going to be doing a couple of different podcasts today. Uh, we are starting with a guy named Robert Calloway. He is the president and CEO of Range Valuation Services. Welcome, Robert. Thanks, guys. Good to be here. And sitting next to me, as always, is uh, the co-host extraordinaire, Dave DeRode. Welcome, David. Damn right. Damn Thank right. Thank you. Good to be here. We're practicing again social, social distancing. distancing. That is not an exaggeration. I want to be very clear on that. We have, uh, in fact, other than the speaking, we have the N95 masks. Nobody has touched. Nobody has shaken hands. We've I've washed my hands at least four times in the last 30 minutes. So we, we say that to be serious. We want everybody to be safe out there who's listening to this. This is something that, uh, you know, as leaders and people in general, we need to be keeping everybody safe. So continue to do this, what the government tells us. Let's, uh, let's keep everything safe. But on that note, we're going to get started on our podcast today. How's everybody doing? Great. Very good. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. So I always ask this of people. And I think I know the answer for you, but have you ever done a podcast before? No, this is the first one. Do you listen to podcasts? Very rarely, honestly. Do you think you'll listen to this podcast? I absolutely will. <laughs> and more of the Don't you think it's a little bit a little bit embarrassing that he is one of our sponsors of the podcast and he has not listened to any so, of our podcasts? I gotta yet, catch Robert. up on technology so I can listen to more podcasts. First of all, that was That's a phenomenal me. announcement there by David. Yes, valuation, uh, range valuation, one of our valued sponsors. We appreciate your sponsorship. Yeah, happy to support you guys. You're doing some good stuff here for sure. Well, thank you very much. We are the number one rated podcast in oil and gas worldwide now, which is uh, really a testament to our partners in the industry. So, yeah. So, David. Yeah. Let's uh, let's get this thing kicked off, Robert. So we, we typically like to start with a little bit of background about uh, our guest. And so we'd love for you to tell us a little bit about, about yourself, where you came from, and how ultimately you got to range. Yeah, sure. So a little bit of short background. I mean, I'm a native Texan, grew up in the finance world, eventually spent a lot of time in oil and gas due to family interests, because I've got family from East Texas that Fortunately, got to participate in a bunch of Cotton Valley gas wells. So long story short, doing corporate finance, spending time uh, on the E&P side, we were taking working interest in drilling projects and found my way over into the equipment side of things. And previous group we were with, we built up a team of guys that we were doing all the oil field services valuation work for really the past seven years there, I headed up that team. So we were working, valuing things all the way from frack equipment, seismic equipment, drilling rigs, coil tubing, wireline, you name it. I mean, I'll get into the, some of the other guys here. Yeah. But um, when you say the other guys, just real quick so we can announce yeah, what you're so, talking about. So there. my two partners, we've got Willis Choate. He's up in Oklahoma. He's been in the appraisal business for 30 years now due to 
just geographic location. He spent a ton of time around oil field services equipment. And he and I started working together seven years ago. I found Willis and, and we teamed up. So he's been, you know, a good friend, a great partner. And then about three years ago, we had Austin Henson join us. And Austin's out in Andrews, middle and Odessa area. In fact, he was working for one of our, our clients. Austin came to us from Key Energy and he was an asset manager at Key Energy for nine years, almost 10 years. So he spent all of his time buying and selling equipment, monitoring their equipment, you know, helping them optimize what they had. So tons of knowledge and really understands things and their value. And, and it, from, from that standpoint, he can also help folks with consulting work and helping them sort out okay. assets that they have. So, so Robert, why do you guys have a business? Why does somebody need to get uh, appraisal work, uh, evaluation work done on their, on yeah. their equipment? Who do, you, who do you do this for? Yeah. So traditionally people would need appraisals for asset-based loans with, with a bank, with a lender. So much like you would have an appraisal done on a, like your house to get a mortgage, people would go borrow money against their assets. Uh, on the E&P side, it's rever uh, reserve-based lending. Over on the services side, people will do an asset-based loan and will go value the equipment and a lender will lend some percentage thereof at, at a certain advance rate. So traditionally, that's how all that came about. But because energy is much more dynamic, we also have done a lot of work for companies directly, CFOs, as they're maybe looking for financing, might be for a private equity firm on the M&A side. It might be, unfortunately, in these times, it, it could be people on the restructuring side. Like we'll go value assets for a best interest test for a chapter 11 type filing or, or pre-pack. You know, those are, those are the main reasons you'll see us go out and, and be engaged. Could be a sell side process, buy side process. No, that's, that's, that's helpful. So I guess this is somewhat of a specialized profession, right? I mean, he, folks that appraise, you know, commercial property or homes, that's, that's one set of skills. Right. It seems to be somewhat of a, a commodity, but is it relates to equipment, oil field equipment. We all know, we've heard the comment that this equipment was built for yesterday's oil field or this equipment's built for today's oil field. Right. I guess there's some, is there any, is there any kind of nuance to how you value equipment? The, 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 the type yeah. of equipment it is, the, the, the age of the equipment, even how it's maintained. It seems all, like there's a lot of, of cannibalization of equipment that's happened the last several years. And is that, all, all of those, like you say, David, big factors. I, it's it's funny because people call and say, hey, what's a workover rig worth? Well, it's really hard to answer. You know, what's a frack pump worth? I mean, all those things. I like to say it's like asking, you know, how much a fat dog weighs? You got to go learn a little bit more before you can answer. Right? <laughs> well, is it a Chihuahua? Is there a Great Dane fat dog? Right? Well, yeah. I mean, first of all, this is the first time I've been out of sweatpants in about a week. So, we're, yeah, we're, yeah, we're not. Uh, by, by the way, hi, for the for the uh, folks listening, uh, last time we were here with Leslie, Josh had pink shoelaces. Today he has green shoelaces. Well, it is and it Masters matches your, Week. It's, Masters Week. It's yeah. Masters Week. Matches so, his shirt. And yeah, his we're going to derail this real quick because nothing is more important than the fact that we're missing Masters Week no, right now. Not, not only that, but we were supposed to be sipping tequila with uh, Errol Marquez. Yeah. He was supposed to come on here, and this damn Rona got in the way. So we're sans tequila, Yep. sans Masters. 
plus Robert. And the hell you did is me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you you traded down. Well, so listen, David's, uh, by the way, uh, free shout out of the week goes back to Whisker Shoelaces. They are currently (laughs) our number one unpaid advertiser. I'm going to get them as a sponsor one day. I I got to give a shout out to Armando's boot company since uh, Armando, uh, my good friend down in Raymondville, makes the boots and. We will have Josh in a pair of those one day. The problem is you're going to get a free pair of boots worth, you know, $1,000. I'm going to get $22 worth of <laughs> shoelaces. I need to go see Armando. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. so listen, so David is yeah, going to get back to seriousness. Oh, yeah. There's listen. This is the, the way this podcast goes. But David's going to ask different questions. And I will because honestly, I'm not as familiar with what you do as David is. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here listening to you and I'm thinking there has to be a thousand with all respect guys that are doing what you do what number one what made you decide to be an entrepreneur because you're not you didn't say at 25 i want to be an entrepreneur, or maybe you did number one what made you do this right and where did you see an opening for this kind of service so you talk about why do you want to be an entrepreneur i've always been in sort of that mode one way or another grew up in a family where my dad was very entrepreneurial i mean i used to do things like go mow yards to make money when i was a kid and that was one of the greatest businesses you could have. You had a pickup truck, you had a lawnmower, you just drive around cash the neighborhood, business. cash business. What was not to like? Well, 110 degrees. Yeah. <laughs> yeah mowing yards in Houston, <laughs> but I was, I was cleaning up, making thousands of dollars a month, oh. you know, back in the early eighties. Yeah. It was a good business. I had the nicest bicycle <laughs> pickup truck that a, you know, 14 year old kid could own. It's impressive. Yeah. Yeah. It was funny. No, I mean, that's always been kind of part of my DNA, but it's, it's, I've worked for a lot of different type of companies and even Fortune 50 companies doing finance work. But this is, for me personally, a much better fit. I really enjoy small, flexible teams. you got to wear a lot of different hats. Ultimately, I mean, we were doing the same thing at the, at the old shop where we were before. It was just a really big company, but we were really running our own business within it um, and had built up our own clientele. And we became known as the guys to do Oilfield Services work, mainly because we just took a much more uh, broad view of how to do valuation work. And this really stems from the fact that I studied economics. I'm a finance guy. I love what are the economic drivers as to why someone's going to buy one thing versus another. Um, So it, it became very evident that we were bringing a totally different approach to this than our competition was in terms of appraising oil field services equipment. And through the course of probably three, four years, we got to where we were doing and, and we suspected it. And our competition was telling us later, we basically had two thirds of the market doing this work because of the way we were doing it. I think because of my background, we could interface with CFOs very easily, with the lenders very easily, with the private equity firms very easily. Whereas people that, you know, our competition, it, it they, they just don't have the same resources that we had. And, you know, whether it's Willis and Austin's background, my background, they're all very complementary and in a way that is, you know, we're, it, it is a magical thing. Well, um, you, it's hard to replicate that. That's, that's my question. So you have a much smaller team now. Yeah. Well, not, not really. Really? I mean, really, there were four of us doing all of that work, and we would bring in other resources when you'd have a big deal, which you might have a lot of rolling stock associated with it, you know, truck tractors and pickups and things like that. And those are a lot easier to get your hands around. So we might have somebody help with those types of things. But the real hardcore oilfield services assets, we were the guys that, that really did that. 
and still do. You yeah. know, it, just sticking with a quick theme before we move on. You're you guys started last year. You started the yeah. business up 2019, right? So we we hung out our shingle July 4th. Um, I love that Fourth of July. Fourth of July launch, day, baby. So right. yeah, it is it is meaningful to us for sure. Yeah, some trepidation there, but I mean, we just hit the ground as as hard as we could. Fortunately, I mean, the one thing we are blessed. There's a lot of people in the industry people you know that have been incredibly supportive and told us, hey, you guys just got to get out there. It's it's going to work out for you. So I'm actually, I am interested in the in the part you just mentioned, the trepidation. What What is it like for those listening that either, because quite honestly, let's just be very blunt. A lot of our listeners are going to be finding themselves in different positions, right. maybe uh, today or three months from now. Yeah, Some of them might have an option to go start a business. What is it like to do that? What is it? What trepidations? What feelings did you remember? I'm sure they're still fresh on your mind less than a year ago. What do you remember from that moment in that period? I mean, the biggest fear is, is the business really going to come? Um, I mean, we have the team. We all know each other well. We trust each other. We work really well. It's how fast can we get the business in the door? And ironically, our first client showed up within 48 hours we didn't even have a bank account set up. <laughs> I mean, we were trying to get a bank account number so they could wire money to us two days after we launched. Now, look, it's not that easy, but that was that was pretty exciting. And then you just got to get out there and build the business sort of one customer at a time. And obviously there's some months that are better than others. You know, we were covered up with business by the end of last year, kind of November, December timeframe. It was everything that we would hope it would be. Yeah. And we actually did ultimately hit sort of our, our goals for the, the six month period. Yeah. Um, Do you find yourself doing more, I mean, biz dev wearing more hats than you ever did before? I mean, are you, how active are you in trying to make sure that that dollar comes into the, uh, yeah, I was always involved in doing business development, obviously more so now, but I, I would say previously it was kind of 50% of what I mm. did was more helping with business development and meeting clients because we were the the expertise in in this industry but yeah certainly now more so than ever I'm trying to meet with people and talk to people of course with our current situation we're doing a lot more you know phone calls and zoom or webex Yeah just for today for the record today is the 8th of April so you may not hear this uh until next week or even a month from now so right. we're right in the middle of the quarantine. We're right in the middle of just, you know, shock and awe. The the PPP program just rolled out today. So just so anybody listening understands what conditions we are today, yeah, or we're in today. Good frame of reference. What, let me ask you another question then. What is different about the first nine months of being in business versus what you thought it was going to be versus what it is? Ironically, it's not super surprising. The things that I thought were going to be challenges they turned out to be those challenges. It, it's like any business. You've there's certain customers that are going to be harder to get on board, especially as a small. I mean, officially we're a smaller company, even though we were associated with one of the previously one of the biggest appraisal firms out there. Um, so we're having to remind people who we are, where we are. It's a different name, like anybody else. You you just got to build a business, sort of one client at a time. And at the end of year one, year two. I can see us getting exactly where we thought we were going to be. For me, it's funny. Time just can't go fast enough. Well, speaking of that, obviously, we just mentioned the, the timing of everything that we're in. Uh, what does a market like this look like for a group like yours? Is it better? I hate to say it. Is it better? Is it worse? Is it same? 
Yeah, ironically, whether it's dynamic up or down, tends to create business for mm-hmm. us. You know, when we go through the downturns, it, it drives business for us because people are going to restructure their lending. People are also going to end up having to maybe work with, uh, you know, bankruptcy process. Ultimately, there's going to be mergers and acquisitions. Since most of these companies aren't don't really have any earnings, people are really looking at the asset value as a main driver of, of what they're willing to pay for things. So just like the last downturn, I'm sure it's going to get really busy here within the next couple of months. Um, but when things ramp back up, we're going to have that going on too. Well, Mr. DeRode, what do you have on that note? I mean, I'm I'm more interested in the the entrepreneur side of it. I mean, are you have any specific questions on what this what this looks like and where we're going? Yeah, no, I think it's kind of interesting. You touched on it. Obviously, we're in unprecedented times in our industry. There's obviously a lot of restructurings that are occurring. There's concern about periods of insolvency, if not permanent insolvency. There are, there are a lot of folks. I think the OFS sector, the oil field services sector, is going to be completely crushed by what's happening with the, the apparent uh, slowdown, if not shutdown, of activity. We have John Daniel on uh, later as well. And it's going to be an interesting take that he has, but you know, just preliminarily, it doesn't look good. I mean, not that I'm breaking any news with that statement. Yeah. And so in regards to that, I mean, I guess my question to you is what are you, what are you hearing and seeing from people? I think I saw a blurb the other day from you on LinkedIn that y'all are doing some collateral monitoring and management. Can you tell us a little bit about that? What that yeah. David. What that so we're actually, as lenders are looking at things, to a certain extent, they know from a collateral standpoint, they got a problem, right? They don't know how bad it is uh, as we go through this, but they're primarily interested in is where is my collateral? Is it still in good condition? So we're already getting requests and, and helping people by doing what we would call collateral monitoring, not so much evaluation, but go find all these pieces of equipment that they're using as collateral against their loan, locate them lay eyes on them, know what shape they're in, if they're still you know, able to be deployed, if they're roadworthy, what have you, to at least provide them that first piece of comfort. Because it is times like these, uh, things disappear. Mm-hmm. Uh, assets can walk off. So so that that's one thing we're doing for people now, even before you would start to put values on things. Or I guess if a bank has got to go and try to collect those assets, they've got to make sure they're in drivable condition or trailerable condition, I would imagine. And then I know, you know, several years ago, we saw some cannibalization of equipment. Is right. that is that a concern of folks Absolutely. right now? Yeah. yeah, that's, you know, either maintenance or, you know, frack is definitely one of those spaces where people will take deck engines or transmissions or power ends, and they'll just start to, instead of buying new, go to, go to the pumps, the horsepower that they have that is idle and and, and take good components off to to make sure you still have one good pump that that's usable. So that's definitely an issue that, that people are going to want to monitor. I mean, we've even seen those issues, people doing water hauling. Back in the last downturn, there was a water hauling company. They had a bunch of truck tractors that somebody had lent money against. We drove by their yard, you know, just to poke around and half of their fleet wasn't roadworthy anymore. Those are real concerns, you know, maybe today, Everything might be sort of okay, but as we start to go through this, people's CapEx budgets are just crushed. 
they're having a hard time just being cash flow neutral if making any money at all. So maintenance capex it becomes really challenging. Yeah. So when you're doing this, the kind of the collateral monitoring and y'all going out to the yards in some cases to see if the equipment is there, right. are y'all also looking into like say if you're if you're a service company and you just bought some brand new equipment, brand new say in the last 12 months or so, that equipment probably still has a fair amount of useful life. It's probably yes. built for today's oil field and right. quotes. And it's probably equipment if you feel like you're going to see light at the end of this tunnel that you want to take care of winterize appropriately because you're probably not going to go put it to work because you're not going to get paid for it if there's even any work to be done. Right. Are y'all helping folks understand what these companies that are continuing to maintain this equipment that they haven't said, okay, we need to we need to cut it up or or we need to sell it? Are y'all verifying that they have a, a good winterization process on the equipment and stuff like that? Is it? Yeah, to a certain extent. And, and it's early days yet, obviously, as far as people taking what we know today is good equipment and and sort of pickling it, putting it in a, a situation where you know you're going to be able to use it in a few months. And hopefully it's it's months or quarters and not, you know, years. You know, we're talking to people that are manufacturers or packagers of this equipment and how how they would go about doing it to preserve it so that you know it's usable when things ramp back up here. So I know one of the conversations I had with Dirk Lee, who was on our podcast mm-hmm. several episodes ago the other night. Friend was, of the program. Yeah. Yeah. We were talking about, while downturns are not good things for the industry, those who have dry powder, they can be a great thing. So right. don't, don't screw up a good downturn. Are you guys, in that regard, are you – having any discussions with people about private sales versus auction and maybe helping them think about how they discreetly move assets around or anything like that. That's starting to happen in terms of conversations, David. You know, I know people even right before the the corona virus, the COVID-19 issue and and the big drop in commodities prices, there were people thinking about doing things. And so there's a strategy of do I want to try and do a privately negotiated sale? Do I want to push it through an auction? And we have people that we work with and partner with that can help in that regard too. So if anybody needs to, you know, run some things through an auction, even you're just trying to clean up your yard, things you know you're not going to use. I'm sure there's a lot of that. That that's right. going to happen more and more. It's not like you want to need to sell off everything because someone's forcing you to, but you're trying to raise some cash. You know, we can come through the yard, look through things, say, hey. These are obvious things that you should probably get rid of. Here's other things you probably want to hold on to. I mean, these people know their businesses really well. But at the margin, Willis and Austin have worked and and can help people, you know, try and make some decisions there. And then we're partnered up with some guys on the auction side that all they do is sell things for oilfield services. They're not another one of these, you know, all things to all people. They're in Midland, Odessa. They're focused on that. So we're going to see that. But I think... It's still a little early yet. I think people are trying to understand where they are and, and you know, the tough decisions are going to be made here over the, the next few months. Are you starting to get any in, inbound calls from folks? I know one of the regular conversations I'm having these days, particularly with my uh, OFS clients that uh, have equipment that, you know, we were predicting 70 to 90 percent utilization that now we're we're looking at 30, 40, 50% or no utilization at all. Maybe lower, yeah. In yeah. the way that the value that equipment has, but from a from a 
insuring perspective, even if you're going to be parking that equipment, are you helping guys kind of think about, does it even make sense to insure these assets versus, you know, if we do insure these assets, what, what value is appropriate to think about insuring them? I mean, it all has a bearing on ultimately what their insurance costs are. Right. You know, some of these programs, we have stacking credits, so the rate can sometimes be cut in half on the insurance if the equipment is stacked. But are y'all y'all having discussions with folks about that? To a certain extent, yeah. I mean, w- one thing you got to keep in mind is, am I going to insure this for maybe its, its current value right now as a used piece of equipment? Or do I want to, since I'm going to have a lot of assets together in one place, if I were to have a catastrophic issue with everything close together, I might not have to go buy n- new equipment. So I know certain people are looking at policies where likely have them in place too, because they've made this decision. I want to insure on a uh, replacement cost new basis. So, I mean, th- that certainly value we can put on assets in terms of if I were to have to replace this, frack is one of those areas, especially whether it's in the yard or operating, it's always close together. So if you've got a fire or an issue like that, if you want to go buy assets to replace that, uh, one of the easier things to do is just go buy a, equipment new. And if you're insured that way, you know, you're you're going to end up getting back assets that are as good, if not better than what you had before. You know, I, I hadn't really thought problem. about this, but are you going, you're physically going out to look at all this stuff? Yes. You're not sending people for this? No, I, our team, we go and do inspections. We want to go see the assets. I know there's some, you know, in the case of lenders, you know, we mentioned all the different uh, constituencies, but in the case of lenders, some of them are okay with what we would call a desktop where you just look at a list and right. value it. We're never really comfortable with that because we've seen lists where there's assets that are fantastic when you go look at them. And we've seen lists where you go look at them and it's pretty tired, worn out, yeah. junky stuff. So we want to go see the assets, lay eyes on them. We travel all over the place, you know, in so much as they're deployed, we're going to go out to well sites, um, go to go to pads, go see things working. That, that's a that's a good point. I mean, I, I always give John Daniel and, and Jim Wickland and others a hard time about valuing companies and all this kind of stuff, which kind of ties into an ESG conversation. But one of the interesting things that I've learned in, in, in knowing you is that there are some lenders that just want to do these desktop valuations. And right. if I'm looking for good guidance as a lender or an investor, an insurer, et cetera, I would want to know. You want someone if, out there. I want somebody out there. I agree. There because yeah, I'm, because I'm, I'm trying to figure out how you would even trust I can, I mean, well, I can make spreadsheet I think, looks good. I think there's some ignorance is bliss. Like if we don't know it, then we're better off. Yeah. And that's been happening in the financial services world for a long time, which is somewhat dubious. You know, if we don't know about it, then we don't know about it versus having a really good understanding. But point I was trying to make, yeah, I've got a, you know, I've got a cat cat, you know, 2,500 horsepower frack pump. Right. And next thing you know, it's, I valued that at a million three fifty brand new Craig Lang from cat. If it, we're selling your pumps too cheap, let us know. But I think that's probably right. <laughs> that's, a, that's a pretty good, that's <clears> maybe, a pretty maybe good he's giving number. some, maybe he's giving some discounts these days, but you know, you've got that pump, but all of a sudden uh, you've got another pump and you're borrowing stuff from there. That's no longer a pump that has the same value it would have otherwise had unless you put your eyes on it. So yeah, I mean, in I the case of frack equipment, not only do we want to see it, we want 
engine times, transmission times, because it's yeah, it's, that matters. That's a huge driver with with frac assets because they are such relatively short lived assets compared to some other things. So in that regard, one of the things you were talking to me about and asking if there was a market for it, and I think there probably is, as it relates to helping not only companies understand their assets better, but insurers as well. One of the big issues with frac equipment, to to your point, was the proximity which these these pumps are you know parked on a pad. Oh yeah. And I would say a number of frac guys it was a source of pride where you could barely slide a piece of paper between the fender wells of these pumps when they're lined up on on a pad. The pr- problem with that is, though, if you have a well control event or you've got a equipment failure like a freight hydraulic line or an engine yep. Yep. rod that goes through the side of the, the block and you know creates a fire, it's very difficult to isolate that fire without it spreading to the rest of the to the. This was uh, Jamie uh, Stewart. He he made yeah a we, we we yeah. talked about this with Jamie and. I know the insurers have had a lot of fires that they felt could have been isolated and could have been prevented. One, first and foremost, and this is my point, I think, proper maintenance. And and some of the things that some of our friends are doing from a predictive analytics standpoint, they they can see a failure before it actually happens with some of the investments they're making in. uh, All those sensors for vibration and temperature. Yeah, all that good stuff. That being said, I think that's important to understand because, again, at face value, that pump might look like it's in great shape, but it might have just had the the heck run run out of it and not been properly maintained. And it's a day away from ruin because it's not been properly maintained. So I think it's interesting that you do that. It's yeah, so valuable here too. I don't, I'm kind of adding on, but you know, we're big in the world of frag pumps and anything that we talk about in 12 months from now, the equipment that is teetering that to David's point, it's not going to make it. That stuff's not going to help us get out of whatever predicament we're in as an oil and gas industry. We've got to have the best equipment. So to right. me, I hope they're only looking for the equipment that's, that's going to be most productive, most available. That it, that's the way things will happen again mm-hmm. this time. The last downturn, that was absolutely the case. I mean, we used to, we kind of group things into into three big classifications, what we would call tier one assets, really high quality assets that people knew were going to be needed as soon as any increase in demand stepped up. We kind of talked about tier three, which was the old, mm-hmm. tired, quasi-obsolete asset. It was probably going to be pushed to the side. And then tier two in the middle, that's the harder stuff to get your arms around how soon it's good. We know it's not going to be the first deployed probably as we start to ramp back up, but it's definitely desirable. How much of the tier two assets are we going to bring in? And obviously in each downturn, it's going to be different, right? I'm going to want your follow-up on this in about six months. And and I mean that because I think this is an important part. I'm, I'm of the belief, and this is where, you know, I want to balance between being a pessimist and an optimist. I'm an eternal optimist. I try to be. But I just I can't imagine where tier three makes it at all. And what you're describing right. is tier two. Even those assets to me seem like I don't think they're going to have room in whatever new oil field that we're entering into. It could be. Yeah. So I want I, I really would love to have you come back on. I think it'll be very interesting. I mean, before all this mess happened, as you know, Evolution, US Well, others with the uh, EFRAC technologies, right. and then, you know, what ProPetro is deploying, and, you know, then Liberty has done some work from uh, counter-arguing the, the environmental impact EFRAC versus conventional diesel. Or at least um, ter- 
turbine powered or turbine powered turbine pumps. powered yeah. chin frack yeah, yeah yeah you know bj's come out with their titan pump which i think they're just kind of getting started uh early days with that so i mean yeah it's kind of interesting to see where the market was heading before all this and i think to your yeah. point josh i think probably going to see the tier one assets be adopted but that equipment it, yeah. in a large part has not been built yet and well, it's, so it's tier one equipment that is existing. And then even the the field asset, you know, the, the resources, they're only going to be high quality. The the premium of the premium is the only thing that's going to survive, certainly in the down in the midterm here, right? I mean, while we figure out what's going to be available. Yeah. What, what was interesting is the last time around, tier one assets, the guys that own it, were not willing to sell it hardly at all. Mm -hmm. It rarely changed hands. And people that were offering money for it, usually somebody that was private equity backed, they were looking for it at a certain price point because that was the biggest lever in their financial model is what their cost basis was in that equipment for you know whatever their next effort was going to be. They pretty much knew what they were willing to pay for it so that they could make their returns. And there was this big, uh, I would say, significant bid-ask spread between what folks were willing to sell it for and what people were willing to pay for it. And it didn't happen just didn't happen I've, i can't wait to have you back on because honestly I, it's going to be an interesting <clears throat> story development how it comes over the next six months here yeah yeah maybe when uh when we get robert back on too we can have john daniel don't worry that's uh roberts with this uh sinuses what's he hilarious about he didn't have is, the rona <laughs> he's he has been trying to hold that cough in for yeah. 10 minutes <laughs> which pretty i impressive watching him <laughs> Too bad we're not on video today, yeah. but uh, <laughs> everybody's anyway. afraid to cough. And I appreciate you covering it with your shoulder and everything. He who flinches first, right? So See, uh, uh, the, the, the oak pollen is just off the charts right now. Listen, everything right now is coronavirus. So <laughs> yeah. I, I, this, we're about to conclude this interview. <laughs> he says that he's yeah. sitting 12 feet away from yeah. me. <laughs> I'm going to spray myself with some Lysol spray in a minute. So, somebody sent me the other day, you know, historically when people would uh, sneeze around you, everybody would say, God bless you. And now everybody's telling you, F you. you know? yeah. <laughs> get away from me. Get away from me. <laughs> well, listen. On the note that we got to get Robert out of our office immediately uh, due to that last little cough there. Um, yeah. What is, so one of the things we like to do when we wrap up and I'm making light of some terrible situations, but what else can you do? This is, I'm, I'm happy for you just as an entrepreneur, as Thank a business you. owner. Thank and I know David and I were talking off air with you. Very exciting stuff. You know, really, I'm sure you figured out that the real secret to success is just working all day, every day. So a lot of hours. What is one of the questions we'd like to finish up with is if you could tell or ask or if you could tell yourself or someone else, you know, younger 30, you know, 30 years ago, Robert, a uh, piece of advice, wisdom, or even a life mantra that's gotten you to where you are today, what would that be? I mean, there's a lot of people that won't get 30 to 45 minutes with you. So if you don't mind, what is a piece of advice that you would pass on or to someone else? You know, that's a great question. One of the, the biggest benefits is to always have your eyes open and just have pretty large peripheral vision because there's opportunities in places you didn't even know to look for them. And I had you told me 15, 20 years ago, this would be what I was going to be doing and making good headway at, I never would have believed you. But life presents you with certain opportunities and, and you know, you, you make certain changes and you got to be willing to, to look at them and consider them. And I think you also always need to be a little bit outside of your comfort zone, because if you're not, you're not growing, you're not learning. Uh, if you're super comfortable at what you're doing, you're not making progress. Great me, advice. Yeah. Me personally, I always have to be learning something. 
I am not good uh, in a static situation. I always need a learning curve that I'm on. So, you know, in this case, we're, we're pushing forward with a, you know, a, a new business with a, an established team. There's a lot of folks that would say, you're not a ranked startup. You have a team, you have clients, which we did. And we're, we're blessed to have all of that. But, it, um, you know, fortunately, we had a lot of people encouraging us to go do this. And you've got to listen to people that are telling you to, to get out there and, and go get it done. And well, you are incredibly likable. Uh, we've, like I said, I've met you over the last six months. And uh, I'm rooting for you big time. Dave, is there anything you have to finish up with? Thank you. No, uh, we're, we're rooting for you big time. And fortunately, unfortunately, I think you guys may be busier than you. So, so just to, to wrap up, equipment and inventory valuation and appraisal. Correct. You're doing collateral monitoring and, and well, I'm, management I'm about services. to make him give his uh, email address here. Or your web, your uh, what's your website? Yeah, so the website is rangevaluationservices.com. Okay. And so, yeah, feel free to shoot me an email. It's Robert at Range Advisors, which is an ERS, advisors.com. And all of our contact info is on our website. I always smile when people give it out because this is a global podcast. I mean, we're in over 75 countries now. No, no, no. We're, we love meeting new people. Look, right now, we just want to be helpful to folks. Ultimately, the business will work itself out. But if people have questions, if, if they're trying to figure things out, give us a call. We'll, we're happy to help all we can. If we don't know, you know, through our respective networks, there's likely somebody we know that can help out. So that's first and foremost, we want to be helpful. Well, Robert, great, great to have you down here. We appreciate you driving Thanks, down from Dallas. Robert did drive down from Dallas today. This morning, we appreciate yeah. that. And uh, I know uh, that's that's not the... Most fun drive. So we appreciate you being here. Oh, it was very worthwhile. Yeah. Very good. worthwhile. No, thanks so much, guys. This well, listen, great. We, thank you so much for coming in, buddy. And uh, that's going to wrap us up here on the Oilfield 360 podcast. Uh, once again, Dave DeRode, thank you for being here. Robert, looking forward to it. We're, we're rooting you on. If you have any questions, you want to get a hold of him, look up his uh, website. If you have any questions for us, you can email us at either david at oilfield360.com or josh at oilfield360.com. We are available on all your podcast platforms. Follow us on uh, LinkedIn for a lot of updated information. But again, the support from everybody listening has been phenomenal. Thank you so much. Robert, good luck to you guys. Thank you. Stay safe, everyone. For more information on today's guest and to learn more about our sponsors, please visit www.oilfield360.com. Simmons Energy, a division of Piper Sandler, www.simmonspsc.com, World Oil, www.worldoil.com, Prang & Associates, www.prang.com, EIV Capital, www.eivcapital.com, Galtway Industries, www.galtwayindustries.com, Tomahawk Safety, www.tomahawksafety.com, Range Valuation Services, www.rangevaluationservices.com. Lockton Global Energy and Marine, www.lockton.com. Piper Sandler Companies, NYSE PJC, is a leading investment bank and institutional securities firm driven to help clients realize the power of partnership. Securities brokerage and investment banking services are offered in the U.S. through Piper Sandler & Co., member SIPC and FINRA. 
in Europe through Piper Sandler Limited, authorized and regulated by the UK Financial Conduct Authority, and in Hong Kong through Piper Sandler Hong Kong Limited, authorized and regulated by the Securities and Futures Commission. Asset management products and services are offered through four separate investment advisory affiliates. U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, SEC, Registered Piper Sandler Investment Management, LLC, PJC Capital Partners, LLC, and Piper Sandler & Co., and Guernsey-based Parallel General Partners Limited, authorized and regulated by the Guernsey Financial Services Commission, Simmons Energy, a division of Piper Sandler are the energy specialists of Piper Sandler.